The following contains audio that has been extracted from the original YouTube video and re-edited for today's podcast. In the spring of 1989, a 10-year-old girl living in the southern region of Sudan experienced something so horrific it defies conscience. But from this tragedy, events would transpire that would astound doctors, influence world leaders, and change the very face of the world as we know it. If that's something you like to think about, welcome to Check Your Head Stories podcast, where we consider the bright side of things that can be considered quite disturbing, with tales of the miraculous, the curious, and the oddly beautiful. And if you want to help spread the cheer without losing your edge, and direct your thoughts in a bright direction, be sure to press the follow button. Let's get to it. to think about. Warning, today's story contains graphic details and descriptions of extreme brutality and violence. Rebecca, a self-admitted sleepyhead, was the last of her family to wake up in her small thatched roof home and start her day as usual. But there was going to be nothing usual about this day. Her mother, who was in the late stages of pregnancy, had gone into labor the night before. Despite being in labor, Rebecca's mother woke up early to prepare tea for her husband Deng and her eldest sons before they went off to start their day and meet under the magnolia tree. Now, it might seem a little odd that the men would leave a woman who's in labor, but in the Dinka tribe, men did not upset their day for something like a birth. That was considered a woman's issue. Rebecca could see that her mother's labor pains were not yet severe, so she had time to make some breakfast. But before she could start her task, a man came running into the village, flailing his arms with a dire warning. He was yelling at the top of his lungs to gather what they could and get out. He said, they burned my village and the troops are headed here now. They're gonna come and kill everyone and burn the village. Grab what you can and run. Rebecca's mother wanted to go and warn the men, but all she could do was waddle. So Rebecca ran on ahead where she found her father and her brothers and the other men of the village and told them about the attack. Dang was a tribal leader and he had three different families. Two of them had been living in the village that was across the riverbed that had just been attacked. But as he returned to his home, he could see that both families had made it across the riverbed they'd escaped with their lives. Dang quickly organized his family into separate groups and provided them the things they would need for their flight. By this time, a sea of people were running from the village, running for their lives. Dang bid his family goodbye while he went off with the other men and sent his family, the women and children and the elderly, off in a different direction. These kinds of attacks had become rare in recent years, but the Dinka people were under no illusion that they were living in peace and safety. The decades-long civil war had taught them that when the attacks came, the best strategy was for the people to separate. The men and older boys would run off in one direction, sending the women, children, and elderly men off in a different direction. Now, it may seem like the able-bodied men were leaving the rest to just fend for themselves, but really, this was the best chance they had for survival. Because if they were caught together, the men would be immediately killed, and then the women and children would be subject to torture, abuse, and then being killed or sent off into slavery. So this was the very best option given that there were no good options. Rebecca's group consisted of 12 family members. 
Now, there were three adults, but one was an elderly man who was quite feeble, another of Deng's wives who was taking care of two toddlers, and Rebecca's mother who was in hard labor. So Rebecca, at 10, was the eldest child of the group, and so she became default the one in charge. The plan was to head to the dry riverbed. Now, during the rainy season, the trees alongside the river were covered over at their roots with water. So the roots would rise up during the wet season. But during the dry season, the roots became exposed and created a tunnel or a covering where the families were going to run and take shelter. As they entered the hardened waterway, Rebecca's mother's contractions became severe and she collapsed. The group had run ahead and they were screaming for her to get up and join them, but she couldn't. Rebecca headed back and she helped lift her mother up and just as she stood, her water broke and she collapsed again. The group was screaming out more frantically than ever and Rebecca did her best to steady her mother and help guide her to the shelter under the tree roots. Once they had taken cover, Rebecca's mother went into full hard labor. Rebecca could hear the sounds of the gunfire and the screams as her neighbors were being slaughtered and she could smell the smoke of her village as it was being burned. She was in a state of shock. She looked to her sister, not being able to believe this was happening and said, do you think we'll make it out of here alive? Rebecca's sister said, I have no idea. That's when Rebecca decided she was going to call out for help. She called out to an entity she had heard of who she understood was very powerful. This entity was Satan. Now, in the West, we think of Satan as the ultimate evil. But in her culture, Satan was just another one of the many gods that they prayed to and worshipped in hopes of getting some kind of help. So she, growing up in witchcraft and voodoo, just said this prayer. As soon as she finished, there was a lull. There was no more gunfire. She couldn't hear any more screams. She thought that maybe, maybe the attack was over and she and her family had survived. But just when she was breathing a sigh of relief, three men stepped out into the riverbed, all holding guns and scanning up and down. They were looking for someone. And as soon as they spotted a little bit of movement under the roots of the tree, they said, there they are. And the three men sprinted towards them, shooting as they came. I will let Rebecca tell you what happens next in her own words. So my stepmom was killed instantly. Her son, her son and daughter were um, shot in the same place um, from the back and, um, and the bullet just exited in the, you know, the front. So their entrails spilled. Somehow the daughter was able to kind of like move herself, but her brother, like his spine was hit. So he wasn't able to move. And I just remember him screaming for help. Just calling out, somebody help me, somebody help me. So that was three hit their younger brother, um, who's about maybe two and a half, three years old, um, had been shot in the wrist. My mom was shot in three different places. Her right, yeah, her right hand, um, the bullet went through her right hand, so she, um, 
severed these three, these two fingers. They were just shreds and just hanging. And then she was shot in the back, like behind her shoulder blade, and it just exited. And so she was just open. And every time she would talk or say anything, it just, you know. My five-year-old brother um, was killed instantly, a bullet through his head. The parents and the older siblings basically just jumped on top of each other trying to save one another and protect as best as we could and um, in the process of everybody screaming and trying to stay alive um, my mom yelled at me screamed at me saying you've got to run I'm not going to make it out of out of this alive but you need to be able to stay alive and tell your dad what took place what happened here and of course I'm terrified, I'm screaming, I don't want to leave, but I want to leave. And, you know, I said, I, I don't I, I don't want to leave, I want to be with you. If, if we die, we die together, I don't want, you know. And she said, no, you need to get up and you need, you need to run. I got up to run and I think I took maybe five, six steps, maybe. I don't even know, I really don't remember. I fell and I thought I had tripped on a root or a rock or something and I tried to get up again and I fell and then the third time I tried to get up I I think like it just clicked it wasn't just a rock that hit me it was a bullet and I just felt this crazy heat running down my legs and I was like oh my gosh it felt as if somebody was pouring boiling water down my leg and I remember looking down and um, bones were just sticking out and blood was just gushing. I screamed, tried to crawl, um, but the men, after they did their shooting or whatever, they took off. Um, my mom called me over and so me trying to get to her, I just, you know, almost like army crawl because I couldn't really and I just remember um each time I would move like I would move and I would sit pull this leg up like some of the bones would stick in the dirt even so I would like have to like pick my leg move it and then try an inch and finally I got to my mom and um my baby sister had been tucked so my mom was cover had been covering her, so she was like tucked inside my mom. And so when my mom had gotten up, because of all the blood that she'd lost, the baby was just covered from head to toe in blood. And so, um, and like like when she would, yeah, um, it was horrific. It was horrific. My mom, you know, I, I remember her just saying, "It's your turn. Take over. My time has ended. I'm not gonna make it." And I was like. I can't. I, I, what am I going to do? I, I can't take care of her. You can't. So I just, you know, out of fear, I'm like, don't really know how to cry. You're just so in shock and disbelief. And I was just like, okay, okay, okay. But you can't, you can't stop talking. You just keep talking to me. And so I, to her, so then to her left, which was, I was right next to my brother. Um, I turned and he's, he's dead. And then my half brother is 
a little ways from me and he's screaming in the sun wanting help. But I remember crawling to my half-brother who's screaming and asking for help and trying to pull him, trying to pull him to a shade. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. And um, I just sat with him. I did cry then. I sat with him and I cried. I said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And he, he cried until he died. He screamed until no more. So then after that, I crawled back to where my mom was and I just waited. And then I don't know how long it took. It seemed like forever. My dad, out of nowhere, just showed up. And it was one of the craziest things I had never seen or heard my dad cry ever. And I just remember him going from one person to the next, almost like in a slow motion, but fast at the same time. Um, and then he just, after doing like two or three circles, he just sat and wailed. The tragedy of that day compounded when it was discovered that the baby who was in the process of being born had died in the womb. And it became very clear that Rebecca's mother's injuries were far too severe for her to survive the trip. And so the gut-wrenching decision was made to leave her there to die alone. Rebecca was carried to a nearby village where arrangements were made to have her taken to a first aid facility that had been set up in a border town called Locachokio. Once there, the diagnosis was grim. Four inches of her tibia had been shattered in the attack. Even if they had the medical equipment and staff to treat her, there was little chance her leg could be saved. And the facility was just not set up to do something as extreme as an amputation. So they fashioned a splint and made arrangements for her to be flown back to her own region. The problem was she didn't have a village to go back to. Most of her family was dead. They weren't quite sure what to do. But miraculously, while in Locachokio, she found out that she had a family member there, a distant aunt. And so she said, I will take her back to my village and give her the care she needs. Rebecca didn't know her aunt well, but while they were waiting for transport, Rebecca's aunt shared with her her strong Christian faith. This was all very foreign to Rebecca, who'd been raised in witchcraft and voodoo. When she prayed to Satan, she didn't think of him as an ultimate evil, just another god. So when she heard of Jesus, she thought, well, okay, I'll give this a try. She took the pragmatic view. So she prayed and gave her life to Jesus. Perhaps he would help her. Once they were back in her aunt's village, they did what they could to help Rebecca survive and to make her comfortable. The men of the village fashioned crutches that she could get around on. You'll have to understand that here, the conditions were primitive. There was no infrastructure, there was no electricity, running water, roads, nothing like that. There was no communication. The crutches helped a bit, but clearly this wasn't going to be enough to keep Rebecca alive in these harsh conditions. The situation became far worse when Rebecca suffered another fall. Now her leg was worse than ever. It was just dangling beneath the knee where her bone had been shattered. The crutches weren't going to be enough to provide even limited mobility. 
The men of the village made a chair and fashioned a brace that would hold her leg in place. Then they took rings and put them through the side under a platform so that two men could carry her around. Other than this, all Rebecca could do was sit or lie down. Now even the horror of losing her leg was nothing compared to what she was facing. She knew she wouldn't be able to survive another attack and rumors began to circulate that another attack was on the way. And even if there wasn't an attack, once the rainy season came, fleeing to a place would, to avoid floods, that just wasn't gonna be possible for her. Her aunt continued to encourage her in her faith, but Rebecca was losing hope. One morning in November, sleepyhead Rebecca woke up to a strange sound. It was the sound of a plane engine flying above her village. Her aunt rushed to her side and smiling broadly said, Rebecca, your prayers have been answered. Jesus has heard you. Your salvation has come. It had been rumored by Dinka warriors that a relief team from a missionary group had been serving the village of Tonge, which was far away, but they were considering making a quick stop before ending their trip by coming to Mario Bai. Mario Bai was only a few miles away from where Rebecca was staying, and they didn't know how long they were gonna be there, a few hours, a few days, but this was Rebecca's chance. Several men attached the poles onto Rebecca's chair, and they began to run as fast as they could. Now, they had to be careful. They were going over rough terrain through the jungle, uh, and so they had to keep her as even and as steady as possible, and so they would get tired out very quickly, so they would run in shifts. As they approached the village of Marobai, they came upon the dirt airstrip. They saw that the plane was still there. Now forgive me because I'm gonna insert myself into this story for just a bit because this is where I can give my first-hand account because I was part of that relief group. As we sat there under the magnolia tree, we saw a, a woman being carried on the shoulders of men and there were people in front of her and behind her running as fast as they could. Now we thought that this might be some sort of royalty and they were coming and they were gonna greet us, but as she got closer, we all saw that her leg had been fastened to the chair. It became clear that this was like a man-powered ambulance and she was being rushed to get the help she needed. As she approached where we had set up, she was smiling broadly, she was beaming and, and they sat her down. The men who had brought her began to confer with the men of the village and they spoke with Pastor Gary, who was our team leader, through an interpreter. Gary looked grim and he called over Dr. Morgan, one of the doctors who was traveling with us from Doctors Without Borders. He took Rebecca aside and he examined her. He said she needs medical attention as soon as possible. This young girl's not going to make it. It was hard to believe that this little girl had been through so much. She was so happy and playful and we made instant friends because I'd brought along a few things like bubbles and silly strings. She'd never seen these kinds of toys and she loved blowing bubbles and she, she laughed so hard when I sprayed her with the silly string. She immediately won all of our hearts and we all wanted to help. But there was a problem. We had flown into the country under the covering of the SPLA, the Sudanese People's Liberation Army. Now, this was the rogue government that was fighting the army from the north. And so we needed to take her back to Kenya, 
but we didn't have the papers or the permission to do that. We would need cooperation from both countries. We had to make the heartbreaking decision to leave her there. But even before we left, Pastor Gary had already radioed ahead and provisions were already in place to get her out of the country. When we left, she was full of hope and she was completely happy because she knew that we would be coming back to give her the help she needed. Arrangements fell into place quite quickly and Rebecca was flown to the missionary hospital in Kenya. Now, once she was there, they took x-rays and it was confirmed four inches of bone were completely missing. They were going to have to amputate the leg. And so a surgery date was set. In the meantime, she was sent to the Safe Harbor Missionary House where the antibiotics could take effect and she could wait until her surgery date. Once back at the missionary house, things did not go as smoothly as planned. Pastor Richard and his wife Dee, who oversaw the house, were having a problem with Rebecca because Rebecca would just not stay still. They kept trying to restrain her or make her stay in bed, but she would not listen and she wouldn't respond. They called back to the United States and told Pastor Gary, we can't control this girl, she just keeps getting up. Pastor Gary was a little confused. He said, well, I don't see how that's possible. Does she have a crutch or something? Well, just take that away. She's not gonna be able to move around. They said, no, she doesn't have a crutch. She just keeps getting up. Again, Pastor Gary was very confused. He said, that doesn't make any sense. She can't walk. There's four inches of bone missing. Her leg's just dangling. But they said, but she keeps getting up and walking around nonetheless. Pastor Gary was again very confused. He said, please, just would you take her in for an examination? So an appointment was made and she was taken back to the hospital. Once there, the staff observed Rebecca walking around freely. And when a new set of x-rays were taken, four inches of bone that had been missing only weeks before was restored. <laughs> Rebecca was healed and the amputation was canceled. Over the next few months, Rebecca's future became a mystery. It wasn't quite clear where she was going to go. She couldn't go home. She didn't have a home to go to. Her father was not in a position to take care of her, and hostilities were growing worse and worse. Once everyone was able to meet, all interested parties decided that the very best thing that could happen would be if Rebecca could go to the United States and be raised there. Now, everyone in my group had shown an interest in making that a reality and adopting Rebecca, but Pastor Gary and his wife Carol were clearly the best choice. They had the wherewithal, they'd had the experience, and they had the time and support to make that happen. The process of adoption was going to be very complicated. It required the cooperation between three different countries, uh, United States, Kenya, and then a rogue government in Sudan. It required that Gary and Carol actually move to Africa and be there for over six months where they went through a bureaucracy that was mind-boggling. During that time, Rebecca became a ward of the state, in, so to speak, in Kenya, and she had to be housed in an orphanage. While in the orphanage, she experienced more abuses, but at the end of it all, Rebecca became a member of the Kusunoki family. 
Rebecca finally settled in Southern California where she became a real California girl. She took to it quite swimmingly and she was remarkably resilient, but even though she was so powerful, she was still traumatized and tormented with nightmares for many years, reliving the horrors that she had experienced when her family was brutally taken from her. In her new loving family, in this new culture, and with her new deep faith, Rebecca eventually experienced deep healing. The healing of her pain became something that was going to bring healing to the whole world, because that's not the end of the story. Through an encounter that could only be considered miraculous, Pastor Gary was seated next to a U.S. congressman on the way back from one of his many relief trips to Rwanda and South Sudan. Here he was able to tell him about the mission that he'd been involved with and the things that were going on and the war crimes that were happening. When he told this congressman about the story about his daughter, Rebecca, and what she had gone through, his heart was moved. Pastor Gary was asked to testify in 2001 before a congressional subcommittee about the atrocities that were happening in Sudan. He brought Rebecca along. Her story was so moving to that congressional subcommittee that the decision was made that the United States would get involved with diplomatical relations and negotiations. U.S. diplomatic involvement eventually helped broker a peace treaty that ended a decades-long civil war. At the end of the peace treaty, the people in the southern region of Sudan were given their chance at independence, and they voted, and on July 9th, 2011, the new nation of South Sudan was born. Rebecca never lost her joyful disposition or her sense of awe at the miracles that she's experienced. She didn't let her past define her, and she's gone on to carve out the kind of quiet life you might expect from any typical Southern California girl. But now that love, her faith, and the years have helped her process her past, Rebecca's ready to tell her story. She's also ready to take action. It's her dream to go back to her home country and take over the land that's still owned by her family. There, she would like to establish a school and a faith center to bring education and hope to future generations. And I hope you enjoyed thinking about this, at least the redemptive parts about it, because that's what this channel is all about. With tales of the miraculous, the curious, and the oddly beautiful uploaded once a week. Check Your Head Stories is also a YouTube channel with a video presence on Rumble and almost all social media. If you want to find out more, come visit us at our website, checkyourheadstories.com. See you next time here at Check Your Head Stories.